What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to the Andor Podcast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our podcast for the Star Wars Disney Plus show, Andor, Season 1, Episode 10, One Way Out. In this episode, we'll be talking about our overall thoughts on the episode and reviewing some open questions before moving into a scene-by-scene breakdown. After that, we will consider some listener feedback, and then we're going to spend some time in open discussion talking about some wider ranging themes and issues that the show is dealing with. We wanted to put that at the end so that you could enjoy the discussion at your leisure. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to andor at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those questions in the next episode. We're covering Andor in full, and if you want to talk Star Wars with us sooner, Join us on the Bald Move Discord server, link in the description below, and at baldmove.com. If you're enjoying our coverage of Andor or any of the other shows we're covering, and you'd like to support us directly, head over to patreon.com slash thelorehounds and subscribe today for early and ad-free access to every episode. Of course, you can always find our ad-supported episodes on our public feed. Just search for Lorehounds in your podcast application of choice. And if we could ask one more thing of you, please take a moment and rate the podcast and leave a review. Ratings and reviews help other people find the podcast, which helps us make more podcasts. We're two episodes into The White Lotus over on HBO, and the first episode of our new series, Silmarillion Stories, will drop later this month, just in time for the Thanksgiving holidays in the U.S. We've got some more plans in the pipeline for December. John, what are we thinking? Yeah, we've got another episode of Silmarillion Stories at the end of the month. And also, in addition to our White Lotus podcast, we're going to be diving into some more Star Wars with one episode on Tales of the Jedi. We are. We're going to be recording that pretty soon. So if you want to get feedback in, send that in soon. And you can send it to the same and or at the lorehounds.com email. We also have an interview coming up with the author of the new Wheel of Time book, Origins of the Wheel of Time, that's going to be coming out sometime very soon. So stick around on our feed. We've got plenty science fiction and fantasy for you. All right, with that housekeeping out of the way, David, what did you think about episode 10? Well, John, I think I'm worried about you editing this particular episode because there may be times where I might just start break down, uh, just break down and start sobbing. Uh, (laughs) This, I I literally, I, I was honestly weeping during this episode, I was tears were streaming down my face. I was choked up after this. I watched the episode this morning uh, when I sort of got to work. You know, my starting on my work day, and after I got through the episode, I went upstairs, and my spouse was like, "Oh my god, what's wrong?" And I was just like, "I just watched episode ten of Andor," and she was like, "Oh," she gave me a big hug. I, I was completely <laughs> gobsmacked by this episode. I, I I don't. I have seen a lot of great TV uh, as as a lot of people have. Nothing has ever impacted me as hard as this show has, as this episode of television has. Well, I will not edit out a single sob. (laughs) You have my word. All right. Fair enough. 
Yeah, uh, I thought it was a really amazing episode. I haven't really been rewatching them very much just because of my schedule uh-huh. before we record. And this episode, I said to my wife, I was like, I need to rewatch this tonight before we record. Right. So I did. And it was better the second time because I got to pay attention to even more of the details. And it was just a really incredible experience. I mean, from start to finish, the tension kept ratcheting up. The triumphant moments felt earned. And they didn't make some choices that I think would have cheapened the arcs if they had. And we'll get to those as we go through our breakdown. Yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I heard somebody else, uh, I think it was on the Midnight Boys over on the Ringerverse, uh, one of the hosts over there said, um, uh, all gas, no breaks. Once the prison break started, I was like, yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair assessment. Uh, well, they, they did break it up with Mon Mothma, which I think was a good idea. Yeah, right. It gave us a little bit of buffer and a little filler for us to uh, let our emotions sort of uh, resolve uh, and evolve a little bit as we were watching. You know, last episode, I, I said I, you know, jokingly, I, I had six pages of handwritten notes and, and I did. In this one, my notes are very small, uh, relatively, just because of the 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 pacing and the action. It wasn't like they were layering in a lot of other complex things. What they were delivering was very straight, very clean, very direct, but with so much force, and it landed with such impact that yeah, I I can't I cannot think of another episode of television that affected me in the same way. Yeah. Well, why don't we get into it then? That sounds like a good idea to me. Um, before we do, just quickly, because we um, we didn't have we kind of ran long on our last episode, and I have my open questions list, and I want to just touch on that really quick. So we still haven't seen the resolution of the sky crystal. You know, remember that way back then in Aldani? <laughs> yeah, seems like a lifetime ago. We still don't know where um, Luthen's sky crystal is. There's still some questions around Mon Mothma's daughter. I'm thinking maybe all of that that she was. You know, what we were seeing with her was just sort of normal 13-year-old type of stuff. But we have a whole new twist to that now. Yeah. No, I think that was on purpose. I th- yeah. I think that they brought her in on purpose and made her a little standoffish to show how Mon Mothma could not possibly do this to her daughter right now. Yeah, I, I think that that resolves that issue. It's like, she wa- rather than just being a background character, they brought her forward. They highlighted her a little bit with her behavior to make us take notice. Mm-hmm. And so now we've got that hook for that. Next question is, where's Cassian's briefcase? Is it still over the shower back on Space Miami? And I believe somebody else, I think Joanna Robinson said that she rewatched that scene and that she saw Nemec's manifesto in the briefcase. Ah. So does the briefcase matter? Does the manifest matter? So those are some open questions there about, about that. The manifesto is an interesting question because in a normal show, I would say you're going to hear Cassian reading it with Nemec's voice reading it in his head right, towards yeah, the end yeah. of the season or the end of the series. And I feel like that's a little cheap for the show at this point. Totally. So, and it'd be interesting, does Cassian go back and get it, right? Do we, do we see him, you know, uh, skulking back there like an alley cat, you know, looking for that? Uh, is it still there? I don't know. Does it matter? Yeah. Lots of good speculation and questioning about what they're making in the fa- at the factory. Does it matter? I don't think it matters. I mean, I right. I think that uh, I think that the show told me that it doesn't matter. Right, and it may pop up later. You know, something we'll we'll see. But like, yeah, the 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 point was the further radicalization of of Cassian Andor. 
There was a question that came up during Dedra's questioning with Bix about who recruited Pack, and would that lead back to Luthen? I think, you know, a lot of people have been speculating that that is Clea, but we're not sure. Hmm. So it's just an open question. The vow. We keep hearing about this vow. Mon Mothma made a vow. Um, uh, Vel made a vow. Uh, Lonnie <laughs> made a, a vow. <laughs> as we, we find in this thing. Lonnie. What a, what a Star Wars character named Lonnie. Hey, Lonnie. Right. <laughs> Another question. Where's Blevin? <laughs> I don't know if it matters. I don't know if Blevin got his... Uh, Got transferred to another sector or something? Blevin's gone. Yeah. Don't even worry about him anymore. And lastly, what's inside of Karn's secret box? It's all pictures of Dedra's feet. <laughs> oh, John. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just had to, didn't you? <laughs> leave it in. Leave it in. Too much HBO. <laughs> too much, way too much HBO. All right. So those are just some of the open questions that I'm tracking You know, ac- across the arc of the uh, series of the season this year. If you've got questions, write in or post them in our, our Discord. Uh, I'm sure I might have miss, be missing a couple of things, but uh, I don't know. I think it's fun because we're seeing these things tie back in at, at different stages. And uh, we've answered a lot of these open questions that are now closed. Um, uh, but it's kind of a, a fun to see how Gilroy is uh, weaving these through the storyline. Thanks, Tony Gilroy. All right. Scene breakdown? All right. For our first scene. Olaf is removed and Cassian convinces Kino that the time is now. So something that really caught me when they were taking Olaf's body through the factory floor. And I, I have to say, too, I love that the, the show's done this a couple of episodes now where we start right on the heels. I think the last three episodes, we started right, um, you know, minutes after the last episode ends, we're starting the new one. And I just love that flow and that pacing. But when all of the, I guess, the night shift uh, prisoners are on program as the guard is escorting the medic and the little floating, uh, you know, gurney uh, thing out with Olaf's body, all, you know, they're all on program. And it was almost as if it was like an honor guard, like they were almost standing in salute of him. You know, even though they're doing it under duress, right, it was still just a, this moment of silence. And it was like, you know, as, as Olaf was passing through, um, and all of the other prisoners were standing upright and holding, you know, holding their program, you know, really tightly. And I just felt, wow, that, this is like, you know, an a, a honor parade and, you know, an honor guard, you know, um, uh, honoring one of their, you know, fellows being taken away. Yeah, and I think that they're all super on edge, too, because, you know, I, I think that everyone pretty much understands that that was a medical death. Right. But there's a ton of crazy stuff going on right now, and I'm sure that Cassian and Kino especially look absolutely shaken up by the time that they enter the room. Right. So they are not sure what's going on, especially now that everybody knows that something is happening on too, and they don't know what except for Cassian and Kino. And it's really interesting to see this tension between respect for an elder, respect for one of their teammates. And then also absolute fear of these guards. Right. So Kino and Cassian, um, a couple of script bombs in this scene. Um, Power doesn't panic. Wow. Wow. You know, it's funny because I heard that line and I was like, that's the line of the episode. And then there were like 10 other lines of the episode. (laughs) Exactly. I I wrote a bunch of them down, like to a crazy degree. That's the kind of line 
that most shows wish they could have once in a season. Right. And they have lines of that quality popping up every few minutes in this episode. The the intensity that Andy Serkis and uh, Diego Luna put into this scene was just incredible. The, the tight in close-up shots, that subtle look of panic that's always under Andor's face throughout the whole Narkina 5 sequence, just two actors at the peak of their craft delivering excellent scripting. It was incredible. It was absolutely phenomenal scene. Plus, you have Andy Serkis, who is so good at popping out his eyes. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I'm looking at him on screen right now, and he's, his neck muscles are all <laughs> bulging, and he's like locked in, you know, staring. And, you know, when we first meet Kino Loy, Kino is just yelling. He seems calm, but, you know, in control of his situation. And each episode, his eyes bulge a little further out of his head. Yeah. To the point where he's nearly Gollum state at this point. Right. Yes. <laughs> You don't have time to be stupid. Boom. (laughs) This line right here told me so much about Cassian and his psychology. Something that we've seen even all the way back in um, Rogue One, but all through uh, the first season of Andor here, we really get uh, that Cassian is quick of mind, right? He's, he's very good at seeing the angles and all the possibilities and the outcomes of various different... Like, he's a, he's a chess master playing, you know, uh, playing in the realms of personal, you know, in, in personal circumstances of, of different people. And he's plotted, he can plot out all the moves, like, instantaneously. And when he acts, he acts decisively, without hesitation, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Like, when he shoots Skeen, there wasn't a... He didn't blink. Boom. He's dead. He, he thought about it. He let it run out for a second. Right. Once he saw all the possibilities, what, what is he going to tell Vel? What was he going to tell Luthen? He had no other option but to shoot Skeen in that moment and then work it out from there. Same on uh, Morlana 1 when he kills the, the two security guards. And so when he says this line to uh, Kino, who's dragging his feet, he's not sure... He's, he's indecisive, which is something I want to talk about later, about this whole thing of uh, uh, characters in this show uh, having real moments of crisis and, and identity crisis and hesitation. Um, he's still not seeing that they're dead and that there's nowhere else to go. And so when Cassian tells him, you don't have time to be stupid, he's just saying, you know, hey, man, like, we got to go. This is it. But to me, that is. Um, a primary facet of, of Cassian's character. You know, I think that this episode executed a Westworld plotline better than Westworld. Oh, shots fired. And if you don't want Westworld season three spoilers, then fast forward a couple minutes. But you know what? The show got canceled, so you probably don't care anyway. <laughs> Ouch. Well, it is what it is. But it is what it anyway, is. Anyway, yeah. in Westworld season three, you had this moment where Maeve says to Dolores, how are you going to convince all these people? And she goes, I don't need to convince all these people. I need to convince you. Mm. And this is what Andor, this is what Cassian is doing. Because he realizes that, well, he's the brains of the operation. He doesn't have this control over the group. He doesn't have this leadership over this group to execute this plan without Kino. And so he says, you know what? If I convince this one guy, I will convince this entire prison. Yeah. And I thought that that was incredibly good writing. 
I thought that a, a, a dumber show yeah. would have had Cassian step up. And 100%. Cassian act out of character and grab the mic yep. and take complete control. And this show did not fall for that trap. Right. Uh, and and they, they seeded that in the last episode when Cassian switched uh, to work with Olaf. And uh, Kino comes over and says, whose ideas are this? And, and uh, Cassian's like, oh, it was the other guy. Yeah. Right. Again, it, they primed us for this happening. Why isn't Cassian, you know, delivering the lines? Why isn't Cassian, Cassian leading, you know, this rebellion? Why isn't he on the uh, on the voice of God, you know, telling everybody what's going on? And that's the actual name of that that character uh, in the in the uh, cast list is the voice of God is the the disembodied voice that uh, tells all the prisoners what to do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I, I I think you're. Hundred percent right. A a lesser show would have made very different decisions. And I think that there's a clear intersection with what Luthen is saying too, mm -hmm. because who do people remember with the rebellion? Luke Skywalker, not Luthen. Mm -hmm. You know, like Luthen is the one who does the work and has the plan and gathers the resources and uses the Empire's tools against them. But Luke Skywalker is the guy who's going to come in at the last minute and show the leadership and be the figurehead that people need to latch onto this new movement and say, this is better. And so you have these people who understand their role in rebellion and in groups and in finishing a task, and they play to their strengths and they, and they compensate for their weaknesses by using others. Right. Um, and, and this is another thing I want to uh, talk about at the end of the podcast, too, is this, this question of sacrifice and the different kinds of sacrifices that, that different characters are making. And then how that relates to Star Wars overall. So that's a, a really great segue for that at the end. So before we move on, there's two last thoughts that I've got. One, we just have to flag this line that Cassian says, I'd rather die trying to take them down than die giving them what they want. Obviously, that becomes a pivotal line later on. But in this moment and in this whole dialogue, there's something that that really caught me as well, and I don't know. I don't know that it's necessarily intentional, but a couple of episodes back, we got um, uh, Cinta telling Vel, you know, I, you love me because I'm your, uh, I'm a mirror. You see what you need to see. Right now, in this scene, Cassian is Kino's mirror, uh -huh. and Kino knows that Cassian is right. He's known that Cassian has, has been right about this whole thing for a long time now, which is why he's let Cassian off the leash a little bit and allowed him to put in place this plan that we see come into effect. But Kino's still holding on, right? He's still afraid of change. He's still, uh, I think you pointed it out, you know, he's still, he's still following the rules of, you know, he thinks he's going to get out of this place, you know, when it's his time to get out. And in this scene right now, here, Cassian is that mirror that Kino needs to, so that he can see himself to see the truth. And I think this is another really important part of Cassian's character. As a leader, he gives other people the truth that they need so that they can activate, so that they can accomplish the goals that, that they have in common. I think that's right. I think that's a good way to view Cassian. Again, Cassian is not going to be this honor forward hero. Right. He's going to be the guy with a plan and he's going to be the guy that makes sure it goes through. 
And he's gonna he's gonna be the guy who shoots the guard in the face <laughs> on the way out the door. <laughs> oh yeah, the the when when the guard is laying down and he's like, "Nope, you're done." <laughs> oh my god! I was actually kind of baffled when they left two guards alive. Yeah, so was I. I was a little bit. I thought that was out of character. But there again, well, they weren't threats anymore. They had neutralized that threat, so you know, I think he just moved on. But again. There he is, you know, uh, being quick of mind and, and taking care. I mean, I don't think, I think if he'd shot those two guards in the control center, then we would have had a different opinion of him. That would be a different kind of, of murder. <laughs> I can't yeah. believe we're talking about shades yeah. of murder here. But hey, yeah. we're covering White Lotus. So, you know, there it is. That's true. A lot of murder this season. A lot. A very murderous season. Yeah. All right. Next scene, we have 5-2-D learning the truth back in their bunks. This was pretty wild moment. This was this was pretty wild. I don't have too many notes. Cassian did his thing again where he steps off the floor at the last minute. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> like you, why can't you get <laughs> yeah. there before? That was you know, I will say this. That was the first moment in this show where I was like, all right, that one was a little too cute. You did it twice. That's too many times. Right. Um the music when Kino finally breaks. This is one of those production detail things. Go back or, you know, maybe listen if you've got AirPods or headphones or something like that. And then watch Andy Circus's face as he's in his cell. And he's finally, finally coming. You know, he's mustering that courage that he needs to break through to speak truth to power and to focus the, the will of the group on this horrible thing that's about to happen, right? You know, they're going to die. A, a lot of them are going to die, and they're not going to make it. And he knows that. Yeah. And he cares for these guys. And so it's going to take a lot of courage for him to break through that um, internal barrier that he has. And the music, when that comes up, is just, oh, so good. He's convincing himself as he's speaking. Yeah. He says, you know, I'm going to die either way, yes. whether I'm in here and transferred to another prison or I die in this prison break. So may as well give it my best shot to stick it to the man. And he really believes it. Right. Right. Like it, it in his bones, he feels it. Whatever internal psychological transformation uh, to understand that he, you know, he is probably not going to make it out of here. And so I'm just going to go from there. Later, we see another character, Taga, who's one of the guys on, on the crew on Cassian's table, who's trying to convince himself of that, and it's not working very well. Um, but in this scene, the acting that Andy Serkis does to bring us to that brink of he's, you know, he's got to grieve for himself for a moment, and then once that's done, he starts speaking that truth to power. <sighs> wow. He's got a long fuse, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. It's taken him a while. Well, he got there, and it was a joy to watch Andy Circus emote on his face so well. Yeah, for sure. Andy Circus is just a master class in visual acting and physical acting, you know? Yeah. And to watch him do that, to watch the way his eyes bulge as he's talking to Cassian initially, to watch the way his face changes later in the episode, I mean... What a joy to watch both him and Stellan Skarsgård act out these scenes, these A-list actors just killing it in, in the Star Wars show, in a, in a TV show about Star Wars. Right. 
I, I don't. I, it's it's interesting because he two of you know two huge roles that he's had are are animation roles, right? Or right, where he's wearing the weird suit with the the golf balls on all over his body, right? The mocap, I think, is what they say. So you know he's that's a different kind of acting, and you've got to work in a different way. And so for him, I wonder how much that has informed his acting overall, and then what he's brought into this role. That's, I don't know, that's a, that's a cool thought. He's recently been doing a lot of audiobooks, too. Like, I know he did the Lord of the Rings audiobooks. He's actually doing a Silmarillion audiobook soon. No way. Yeah, and he did a bunch of Terry Pratchett books. So uh-huh. he's, he's going for it. He's, he's doing a lot of work right now. That's cool. Okay, so on the next scene, the ISB's trap is sprung. So obviously a, a super quick uh, scene here. And it's nice that we weren't just all, all prison break. It, it, I think both this and then when we hop over to Ferrix and we have a little bit with uh, Luthen and, and Mon Mothma, it gives us a sense that the plot isn't waiting, you know, the, the, the rest of the story isn't waiting for individual plot points to occur. Right. Right. All of these various elements are moving forward at the speed that that element needs to move forward at. And so the, it's giving us a real a sense that the world is really the world, and it's really moving forward, constantly evolving uh, as, as the world does. And I thought that that was all handled very nicely in this episode. So we got a little bit of breathing room from the prison break and seeing the other key developments that are going to definitely come into play in uh, episodes 11 and 12. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's great when a story is more focused on how the story is being told than how realistically it's tracking in time between the different storylines. Uh-huh. And this show has sold me on these storylines can go as fast or as slow as they need to go. Everything feels like it's moving forward every episode, even on the episodes that you might call slower. And this episode, everything moves forward a, a gigantic step, it feels like. Yeah. What did you make of Supervisor Lonnie Jung? Super interesting. Yeah. I was like, why are they making him make a play right now? And then it was like later, like, oh. Yeah, I thought it was just some, you know, ego trip trying to trying to get some brownie points with part of gas. But nope, nope. He actually needed to get on the ship. Yeah. So him... With Young and uh, there's one other ISB officer who's uh, the balding guy, and I, I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head. And they've been giving us them as these sort of one-dimensional characters, you know, just sort of uh, extra uh, ISB officers to engage with and talk with. And so that when uh, Lonnie here pipes up, it's like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of cool. And and Dedra like leaves. Like, is she in a huff? Is she mad? Uh, did or did she like? Was this? Did he make the right call? And she's a little bit embarrassed that she wasn't on point as well as he was. I'm not really sure how to make Dedra's reaction to that. I'm not sure how to process her reaction. You know, I was watching her, and I didn't get the sense that she was angry about it. At least okay. facially. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I think that she was just like, okay, the plan's in motion. I'm satisfied. Right, and moving on. Next thing. Right. Yeah. Look, she's got the whole of Ferrix to terrorize. <laughs> That's a lot of plus plus of all of um, Blevin. She's got all of Blevin's uh, uh, sectors to supervise now too, because you know <laughs> Blevin's off in a cage in the outer rim somewhere. 
So back on Narkina 5, the tension is ramping up as there's a new protocol that you've got to be on program all your way to work. The beginning of the scene has the guys, you know, coming out of their bunks and then walking out on the sky bridge and they're absolutely silent. And as you watch them march down the sky bridge, they are in perfect order. And then when Kino shouts on program, they are in unison putting their hands behind their heads in perfect military, you know, like a, a drill sergeant couldn't have been prouder with the way that these guys, like it was. And it, it, it sort of counterpoints the opening scene with Olaf being taken out where, you know, they're ramrod straight, they're, you know, in perfect form and everybody's like locked into position as you would expect a military unit to be. So I thought it was a really effective way of communicating um, how the whole prison break is going to happen because it happens with such military precision in some ways. Right. And it needed a drill sergeant to succeed. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's our boy, Andy. Right. All right. So that was a quick scene. So why don't we head back to Ferrix? So obviously we have some activity outside of Marva's house here, and we've got Cinta keeping an eye on things. Okay, that's all fine. Marva's not doing great. She has her community trying to look after her. But then there's this other guy that they show us after Cinta moves off. And I couldn't tell. I don't know what you thought. I couldn't tell, was he mar watching Cinta or was he watching Marvis place? I don't immediately recognize him. Good question. I wonder if it's somebody who knew Marva from before the Cassian times. Oh, that's an interesting theory. Okay. It could be, it could be a lot of different possibilities. I like that they're seeding it now and letting us speculate for a week. I am going to add that to my open questions list. I like that. So... My interesting takeaway from this was that Marva is hiding her meds. Yes. Why does she not want to get better? It's strange, isn't it? It's one of those things I, you know, when you're dealing with aging relatives, you see some of these, you can see some of these behaviors. And I certainly have had my question too, like, why, why are you doing something that seems counter to your well-being and i i don't really know how to explain that or or deal with it okay counterpoint yes what if she's storing them up to use them for some <laughs> rebellious activity okay oh yeah they did say that she was hiding her meds that was very explicit right i wonder if there is a medical bay in the empire's hotel complex uh-huh perhaps she thinks she could end up there Maybe. I Interesting. Don't know. I'm really okay. just throwing things out here right now, but this scene didn't give us a lot to work with, so that's what you got. Yeah. No. But it kept it kept that plot line alive. That was a basic maintenance plot line, and we will be back with the more substantive plots right after this break. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. And we're back. 
And now we have to head over to Coruscant, where Mon Mothma entertains a proposal. Wow. Wow, wow. Genevieve O'Reilly, the actress who plays Mon Mothma, is, is such an incredible actor. Yeah. Such an incredible... The, the restraint that she is in the subtlety and the, the face acting that she is bringing to Mon Mothma's character is sublime. It's just so powerful, so nuanced. I just believe everything that she's giving me. I, that she has this character so well embodied. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, nobody else can ever be Mon Mothma in my mind ever again. You know, so if I see Star Wars or, Andor, or Rogue One, I'm not going to believe that actor. I have never seen someone be so politely dismissive in my entire life. <laughs> and then Tay just picking up the pieces. Yeah, yeah, she's busy. So she's learned to be, uh, you know, economic in her, in her speech. Right. Oh, my gosh, man. She knows how to shut down a guy while keeping her manners. Right, right. She was, yeah. And, and he, so this is an interesting thing about uh, Skuldoon here. He has not gotten to where he is without being very smart about his business dealings. So he knows walking in how the state, the balance of power here and the state of play. And so he knows that she's going to react to, in my mind, in my head canon anyway, that she's going to not like what he's putting out as an offer. But he also knows that she's got no other options. Right. He knows that she's desperate here. Yeah. She, he would not even have heard from her if she was not desperate. That's right. Now, the best part of this scene for me was how the showrunners used the discussion of antiquity of the apartments to mirror the ties to tradition uh-huh. on Chandrelan right. with marriage proposals. I like it. And so... You know, he goes, oh, I don't really like the old ways, but, you know, there's something to be said for tradition. He makes her defend tradition first mm-hmm. by saying, like, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's boring. I like the new stuff. And then once she's defended tradition, now they have their conversation and he says, well, tradition is a pretty nice thing. And that's the Chandrelan way. So my son will be here and your daughter will be uh, with him. That's a really great insight. I hadn't thought about that level of the scene. I was just reacting to uh, Mon Mothma's disdain for Skuldoon on principle, right? But he really did lay a trap for her, didn't, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. He knew exactly what he was asking for going in. I love that yeah. he says, yeah, I'm pretty much above money now. I, I just have enough of it. So yeah. what I want is... He reminds me kind of of Corliss Valerian from House of the Dragon, where he's really interested in legacy at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's interested in the history books. And I think he feels that if he gets his son betrothed to the, the daughter of the senator, right. then his family is going to gain a legitimacy that money can't buy. I, I totally have here in my notes, Game of Thrones comes to Coruscant. <laughs> it's very, but it's, yeah, it's an interesting point because, yeah, he's trying to ally himself. And she was just like, no, uh, let me just pay you. Like, it's fine. I don't want to be owed any favors. And he just, it was, it, I don't know how he turned that conversation. It was so well turned. I, I was like, what? I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, how is this guy doing this? A drop of discomfort may be the price of doing business. Wow. Wow. Again, would have been the line of the episode if there weren't 10 other lines of the episode. 
and the other one that he drops here is uh, one of the indulgences of great wealth is freedom from other people's opinions. I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's probably pretty true. Gasses her up. He says family wealth is nothing to be ashamed of, and you should be able to spend it how you want. And the Senate didn't even consult on this legislation. My God, you should be free with your money. And he really lays it on thick at first just to rip the rug out under her. Yeah. He, you know, he makes it sound like, oh, yeah, I'll make this look nice and peachy clean for you. You won't have to worry about a thing. And then when she's ready to pay him, she's ready to go through the, with the transaction. That's when he makes his move. So good. So good. What did you make of the fact that he knows Perrin? Mon Mothman did not seem happy about that. <laughs> she was like, okay, uh, yeah, how do you know him? Uh, I don't want to know, and we're not going to talk about it. I don't think she likes Perrin, so. It's true, but they're still, they're still married. To, you know, they're, they're still together. That's the Sean Rolan way, right? And I think that Mon Mothma has made her peace with the sacrifices she's had to make, but she's committed to giving her daughter a better life and breaking her free of the shackles that have chained Mon Mothma. Whereas Skulldoon says, no, I'm going to put one more shackle back on your daughter. And then she's sitting there alone, again, isolated, right? We saw her isolated after Vel left. And then here she is for as much as her relationship with her daughter might be cantankerous, it's still her daughter. <laughs> and right. she's going to marry him to the son of this guy. And she realizes that what he said, like, oh, that's the first thing, you know, false thing that you've, you've said all meeting here, whatever the line was. She was considering it. Yeah, this was a perfect scene. And it was a great way to break up the tension, but yeah. also have an immense amount of tension around a completely different issue. And where is this going to go, right? Like, how, how we know that Mon Mothma ends up full-time in the rebellion. We don't see Perrin. We don't see her daughter. Obviously, these are new show construction uh, things, but they've got to deal with it so that the train cars all will line up. So they have now primed this pump so well so that when we get some resolution in, in 11 and 12, it, again, it's going to have a huge amount of impact once we find out what actually goes down. Well, and you have this scene in the same episode as Luthen talking about all the sacrifices he's had to make for the rebellion. Yeah. And how he's willing to pay those prices to make sure that this succeeds. I want to stick a pin in this uh, sacrifice conversation and let's, let's throw in there because there's so many things around this that's really great. It's a really great, rich topic. Right. But it definitely colors the scene is all I wanted to say about it here. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, so the next scene has Luthen speaking of the devil. <laughs> and he's with Clea, and they receive a message. Why does Clea look like Leia? And why is her name? <laughs> it sounds like it. Like, I think it was last episode when Cassian was in the front room and she was in the back and he calls to her. And it sounded like he was saying Leia, not Clea. I was like... Come on, what are they doing here with this? This is like... It's like if every time Cassian took a fake name, he was like, my name is Bassian. Right, exactly. <laughs> or Schmook, or Manbolo. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> wait, what, what's going on here? What's going on here? I love that they start talking spycraft, and they don't pander to us, the audience, with unnecessary exposition. The dialogue that these two characters speak are the dialogue that they would speak to each other, not to us. 
And I love that the writers on the show respect us to that degree. Go back, you know, listen to it. If you don't understand what they're saying, that's fine. You can figure it out. There's somebody who wants to meet them and he's left secret marks. But the fact that they don't uh, uh, treat us as if we can't figure that out, I, I'm so thankful that these writers understand their craft and their profession. Hey, do you remember that secret code we agreed on with that guy like a year ago <laughs> that we wrote down in the secret manifesto that's only kept in the secret drawer? This show has spoiled me now. I, I'm never going to be able to. I, I'm, there's so many shows that are. I'm going to get like five minutes in. They're going to talk some you know crappy exposition. I'm going to nope, turn it off. <laughs> I'm so spoiled yeah. now. Yeah, no, and I, I have to say about this scene. I cannot believe how much control over his anxiety Lupin mm. has. And can mm. I get whatever he has there? <laughs> well, because yeah. my life would be easier if I could just say, well, if it goes poorly, then we're already done for. Oh, if it's a trap, we've already lost. Oh, wow. Like, he is so on it. Like, that is the Luthen that we know, right? Or that we, that's peak Luthen, right? And he doesn't even turn around to say it. No. He doesn't even turn around to say it. He's like putting on his coat, getting ready to go out. He's like, all right, well, let's do it. And yeah. he's just like, well, if it's a trap, then we're already done for. So let's move on. Yeah, it's so good. So good. All right, David, it's time to get into the meat of it. Oh, Are you ready? Uh, I, I wasn't ready the first time. I don't know if I'm ready this time. I'll try, I'll try to keep my sobbing to a minimum. Well, get your tissues because it's time for One Way Out. Wow. Wow. Wow, wow. The the production of this show and how they pulled this whole thing off. The editors, like I, I think a lot of people we forget editors, right? Because their name's not they're not the director, they're not the showrunner, they're not the star of the of the show. They're back there in some dark soundproofed room, you know, with a, with an editing console and trying to splice together, you know, hundreds of hours of raw footage from, you know, from all the different takes that they did. And the editing on the show has been excellent to a degree that, like, you could teach a class with this show. It was so good. And once they step on the gas in this escape thing, oh, like, all the way to the end, wow. I, I, I just, I, I, can't stop gushing, right? I just, it, I sound stupid. I sound stupid to myself how much I'm gushing. I love how much you're gushing, but oh, so okay. I'll, I'll, I'll start you off here. I'll, I'll right. start you off. We'll ground back in the room because there's a new man on the floor. Yeah. And Kino has some ideas on how to proceed. And so does Cassian. So Cassian is sawing off another pipe because we see he's already successfully sawed off one. And they're for different reasons. So everybody can be right now. Right. <laughs> well, to back up slightly too, when uh, you know the, we see uh, one of the the characters, Taga, and his hand is shaking, and uh, Cassian reassures him. It really reminds me of being back on Aldani with with Nemec, and again here, Cassian being a leader. Right, he's saying focused on the mission, but he's keeping his guys, you know, up, pumped up, and and focused on what they need to do. He is really leading from behind the scenes. I mean, yes. Or, or if not leading, then gassing up the leaders to the point where they can lead. Don't die until you put up a fight is what he says to him. Wow. Right. Like, you know, and he's, he's struggling with the fact that, you know, to coming to an acceptance of that, I am going to probably die in this thing. 
and that's terrifying me. And then Cassium is giving him that bit of courage that he needs to, to get through to the next step. And that is put up a fight. If you're going to die, fine, but put up a fight before you do. And, you know, it's such an honest way to do it because yeah. he's not saying, hey, look, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to get off and we're going to find a ship and we're going to blast off. He's saying, look, you're going to die anyway in their custody. Yeah. Make it count. Yeah. And make it count because we, it, it, makes it makes a difference for it could make a difference for any one of us on this floor. What you do now and, and how you comport yourself, you may end up dying. That's true. But that may mean that you saved the life of somebody else. Did you track Taga? Did he make it to the end? I lost track of him. Uh, I remember him at one point. That's a good question. I'm going to need to watch this again after we finish recording. I'm going to go watch it with my spouse. <laughs> <laughs> You've earned it. Go, uh, but make sure you bring a box of tissues this time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we finally see what Cassian was cutting there. It was a water pipe. Right. And then he already cut some other random pipe that we don't even know what it is, but he needs it for uh, jamming the elevator. Right. Yeah. And it was a beautiful little handoff from uh, one of the other characters to Cassian as he's walking by, uh, just perfectly slid up his sleeve. Like, just, uh, they have, been, have they been practicing this? Have they, you know, how well choreographed this whole thing is, is wild. Well, presumably, at least some of the people here committed a crime. Maybe some of them are thieves and, yeah, like and are, have a little bit of sleight of hand. So, right. you know, maybe maybe at least some of them did something. So they'll, they, they're like, all right, who, who came in here for pickpocketing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was a perfectly choreographed scene. I love how tense it was coming down and waiting for Cassian to give the signal. Yeah. Uh, and just, yeah, intercutting, bringing the new man down, like <laughs> this new guy, like, wow, like what a, what a way to come into your new prison, uh, to an immediate, uh, jailbreak. Well, he didn't have to serve long, so that's good. Yeah. Something that was really great too, that I noticed was once they took position, once they got on program, the amount, uh, the different things that people were doing, they were slipping weapons behind their heads they were gearing up they were putting all these random objects on the tables a couple of guys even pulled some you know the the drill units down behind them it was so like the whole the entire room was in on this and it reminds me of a line from rogue one where cassian says make 10 men feel like a hundred boom like such great connective tissue between this show and that movie obviously that movie being first, but they're taking, I think they, they studied that movie very carefully. Obviously, Tony Gilroy was um, intimately involved, but they're bringing back a bunch of stuff from that and injecting it into the storyline. That's a really cool connection. I, I mean, I think that these people understand that this other unit was already fried entirely, no matter how many people were revolting or not. Yeah. And no, no matter how many of these people try to break out, Everybody on this floor is either dead or getting out, so they better make it count. This water stuff, this was really interesting. I, I didn't quite understand what, why, how, uh, but it really was very effective. Well, as soon as he was letting it just go on the floor, I went, oh, no. But I also did not think he was going to short-circuit it. I thought he was going to be pushing guards into it. 
Right, right, right. So because you know you can you can have boots on all you want, but if you're if you get pushed with your hands and your face onto it, then you're not safe. Right. Um, great, uh, great prison break trope here, you know, starting the, the fight scene, you know, among the prisoners to distract the guards. So that was a nice little tropey, uh, pander, you know, pander to the trope. There's not a lot of pandering in the show, but when it does it, it does it well. It does it smartly, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. No. And I, I love throwing the, the parts, the, throwing the components at the oh, guards. God. Really Attack! amazing. Just this. Yeah. Oh yeah. The battle cry from Andy Circus. Yeah. Come on. And and it was so it was like uh, it was like a row of archers lining up, right? They all like you know lined up in unison with their things and like whoa, you know, threw a volley at the. It was like, wait a minute, how how did they do all? How did they plan all of this? How did they coordinate all of this? It was so masterful. Like it yeah. really has to to inform you of how good a leader Cassian actually is. Uh, and and a good th- uh, one thing that a leader does too is he takes on the, or he or she they take on the suggestions and the information from other people. So like in in uh, previous episode when he's talking to one of his fellow prisoners, the guy's like, "Look, see, you know, there's this information," and Cassian's like, "Oh yeah, you're right. Oh okay, that changes the plan. I got a new idea." And so he's he's probably been working with everybody very slowly and very methodically to come up with this thing where everybody understands what it is that they need to do and they're on board because they were part of the decision making process. Right. Well, they did spend the night planning, right? Right right in in front of this. No, they've been planning this for Oh, no, no. I mean with the with the unit, with the full unit. They said, you know, here's the plan, but let's all discuss now. Well, no, because remember when he says that, he uh Kino just goes back to bed. No, he said, "Get on your, get in your cells, and let's figure out how to do this." Something like Interesting. that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but he, he said, "Now get back, now get back in your cells, and, and let's figure out how to do this." That's interesting because I did find that I found that that was a strange line because then he lay down and like he was going to go to sleep, but maybe then they were just talking it out. But I think I, I, I have to believe that they had had some prior planning on the floor, you know, prior to this, and maybe that they just brought it all together at the end there. Yeah, no, I, I thought that they implied that they spent the night planning. Okay. That, you know, they if the guards walk through or the guards look in the cameras and they want to see, you know, what's going on, they see everybody in their bunk, but everybody's actually chatting. Right. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, Cassian's just ruthless. <laughs> he's just shooting guards in the face and uh he's and and melchie's on point as well it's just wow uh the the action scenes and i love you know when they go in and are rescuing the other floors and like this body comes flying out you know and they're like hey we're breaking out let's go (laughs) absolutely incredible yeah especially that scene where you you see three imperial guards come out in the hallway, oh, boom, boom, and they're boom, just yeah. about to—they're about to die. I mean, that wasn't Cassian; that was another person. But just the way that these people are shooting—I mean, again, some of them probably do have experience being pretty violent, right? But certainly not all of them. And it's nice to see that the people who do have the ability to to fight are protecting people who maybe aren't as good at fighting, right? Now, one other note on the blasters: yes. Can we just thank Tony Gilroy? for fighting the trope 
that the stormtroopers and imperial soldiers can't shoot for shit <laughs> because they were hidden people they were hitting prisoners and they were dying very quickly yep and i love the fact that they are still speaking the star wars language in the production design so that these blasters are very much maybe exact copies of the things that we saw in a new hope well did you see that article i sent you on the way that they approach the production design here yes so basically, the the people doing the production design, and I can't remember the name of the person, so sorry. Luke somebody. Right, right. Okay. So he was saying that they approached this like a period piece, and that rather than doing these computer animated designs like from The Mandalorian, they were building up these sets that you could get lost in. That was his phrasing. And it seems like they relied on practical effects and practical props much more than they re- relied on CGI, and that really makes it feel more realistic in this. I mean, last episode you were talking about how real that factory felt, how real right. the table felt, and all those mechanisms. And this one, I felt like they were throwing objects from that table at the people, and I and I could see all the consoles together that weren't just generated. They were, you know, there were gears going, and the one time that there was a computer-generated scene with the uh water the hydraulics outside that was almost like jarring right yeah yeah that because it went from real objects with real physical uh weight to them and you can actually handle them to a purely pixel you know uh, uh pixel create you know computer created uh, uh image yeah very different right so that's all i wanted to say is like kudos to these production designers i mean incredible job making this world feel real yeah, and approaching this in a way that was respectful to Star Wars and honored Star Wars' legacy, but also felt really unique as far as the recent stuff. Because you know that when George Lucas was making Star Wars in the 1970s, that was that had to rely on more practical effects and real props. And so to get back to that is really incredible. It feels like when they went back to the puppet Yoda in the sequel trilogy, even though the sequel trilogy, for a million other reasons, was a mess, the puppet Yoda was a nice touch. Right, right, for sure. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. I found a, a quick page here about the um, the uh, uh, stunt or the the props for these guns. It's the blast. Tech DH-17 Blaster Pistol, which is based on a Sterling L2A3 uh, submachine gun. That's a, a real thing. Um, anyway, I'll put a, I'll put a link in uh, the show notes for this cool little information page here uh, that that talks about the those weapons because I thought that that was a a very nice little touch. Yeah, and I'll link the production design article as well. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting article for sure. All right, so. We've gotten through the prison. We've gotten at least five 2D and and a lot of floor five, it seems like, free. But Cassian and Kino aren't done. They need to go right into the headquarters in the middle of their attempted crackdown and hold up the people in charge. So I'm looking at some of these scenes as we're talking here, and this control room is great. All of the big display screens that are behind on the walls here actually show the layout of the sleeping pods, how they're connected, how they're connected to the shower rooms and the sky bridges and the factory floor. 
and you get these little yellow dots of like where people are standing. And, you know, Cassian was right. They're not listening. They're watching. They can tell physically where they, any, any person is at any given moment in the facility. And as the action goes on, you see the little dots moving around. And as people are like leaving a room from one room to another, uh, like they, it actually is displaying real time what's going on. I just thought that that was such great design. Well, that makes sense why they needed to go back to their bunks, too, if they're yeah. going to talk about a plan. So. Yeah, no, that's a nice tie-in. I didn't even notice that in the background. Yeah, and all the all the all the control surfaces here, even the the sort of microphone, the PA system that uh, Kino talks into, all very much a New Hope, all very Star Warsian, uh, and it was just really nice to feel that level of detail extended all the way through. Speaking of the microphone, my favorite piece of editing in this was the choices they made of when to have right. Kino directly speaking to the camera right? and Kino through the PA system speaking to the prisoners. Really excellent how when he's telling them that the floor is cold and you see their feet going down, that's through the PA system. That's the voice of God. right? But then you head back into his more emotional scenes where he's quoting Cassian and throwing lines back at him and really being a part of this rebellion and that's right looking at his face right right now that's that is a really good call it's a great pick because we're like you know if you're a prisoner in your room and you're like and you're hearing somebody say oh the the floor is cold like how are you going to feel about that that's so weird but then we have to see kino's emotional evolution as he's going through and and cassium's goading him is like that's all you got like, you know, dig deeper, man. Like, you know, bring it. You've been doing this your whole time here. Lead these men. And I love that we get to see that interaction. And it's something that you said earlier, which is a lesser show would have had Cassian be the voice of God here. Right. Grab the mic. All right. You can't do it. I got it. Yeah, exactly. Bump him out of the way and, and, uh, um, and, and do it himself. But no, he like rallies him. He like gets him to dig deeper. And then he uses that same line about, you know, would rather die fighting than, than die giving them what they want. And it was just like, it's so good. It just illuminates so much how Cassian's personality as a leader is really starting to shine through. Also, when Cassian and Kino are holding up this place, yeah. and they go, well, it could mean a lot of things to shut it down. Right. And then Cassian just blasts that other guy and was like, you know what the fuck I mean. <laughs> and the third guy goes, I'll shut it down. Yeah, that was great. That amazing, was really amazing writing. Like, do not fuck with me right now. Do not pretend you don't hear me. Do right. not pretend you don't know what I mean. We are in the middle of a prison break and you are going to help us or you're going to die. So interesting, too, that they answered the question of the big swirly things on the outside and the waterfalls on the inside. It's like, oh, okay, this is all hydropower stuff. And it was just a, again, really smart uh, script writing here and and world building. And then we get that question. Oh, I wonder, well, it's got to be something. Oh, well, you know, well, you know, who knows? It's just cool. And it's like, oh, no, it's actually a practical thing that this is how this factory runs. It's also kind of funny that when Cassian says, no, just shut the whole thing down, which, again, mm -hmm. incredible foresight, you know. Yeah. If we leave them alive and we leave them with it turned off, they can just turn it back on. 
But with that whole scene, and he goes, well, it's hydraulic. It'll take months to turn back on. Cassian's like, you think this prison is turning back on? <laughs> you think they're going to let you keep running this place? Exactly. He gives him a look that says all of that. <laughs> exactly. I love the the guards hiding in the room. And then the the main guy who's by the door there, he was the, sort of the commander that greeted them as they uh, came in on that first scene. Yeah, and, and he's terrified of them. Yeah, absolutely. As well, he should be. Um, Kino can't swim. Kino can't swim. It's very, very sad. Do you think that Kino lives here or dies? Or do you think that he stays back and is potentially recaptured? I, I don't care. I don't want to know. You don't want to know? No, no. This character has reached the dramatic conclusion. As Cassian said, you know, you've, we've made it. No matter what happens from here, we've made it. And I think for me, trying to keep an open question about what happened to Kino and, well, we, you know, will we see him again in the future? Will Cassian run into him in the, you know, in the rebellion or something like that? I don't want to know. If, if they bring him back, they bring him back. If not, his arc is done. And, and I loved every bit of his evolution into this person. And to leave it right there is just, it's that bittersweet. Uh, taste that's just like, wow, uh, okay, I, I'm at peace with this. Let's bet some internet points that John Favreau will be doing a Kino Loy origin story within the next five years. Oh, please, God, no. <laughs> don't, don't, don't ruin, don't harsh my high, man. Don't harsh my high. <laughs> John Favreau will find anything you love about Star Wars and just make shows about it until you hate it. Is this where we're going on our sideways rant about the, the Disney leadership? Let's do that later. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. In our season wrap, in our season wrap, we can do that. Right, right. So as we're, I, I am, of course, during this whole scene, I'm like, when I first watched it, I'm sobbing. I'm, it was just absolutely bawling my head off watching this. I had, I had a hard time, like, reading the subtitles because my eyes were, like, so wet. Well, that's why you don't know what Kino said when he was getting into the bunk. Exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> I was just a, I was a wreck. But I love this scene as they pan up and we see on all sides of the of the factory all of these little white dots of people swimming out away in every direction just just an incredible way to end this scene okay but if we're honest Olaf wasn't making it out of this either no no he would have not. <laughs> he would not have yeah so great um so not a lot of like uh high end transitions here but this is definitely one where we have this overhead shot as we're spiraling up and away from the factory. And then we um, cut over to the next scene with the elevators moving down. And we go from this, you know, pan back up to this um, pan down or, you know, or, or I don't know what, what a reverse zoom is, where they're pulling us down along the side of these buildings. Hmm. And then we transition then the energy as the camera comes down from those elevators. It pivots, and we pick up uh, Lonnie, and that energy just carries right through directly from the prison break scene to Lonnie working his way through the um, lower levels of Coruscant. So Lonnie. Lonnie's got a lot to do in this deck scene. Luthen meets with the ISB mole, Lonnie. What'd you think of this scene, David? So I thought I was done 
at the end of the prison break there, I was like, okay, whew, I'm emotionally, you know, I'm, I'm a wreck here. And then they give us this. I couldn't believe what we were hearing. I mean, it was like, okay, well, what, what is this guy doing? He's going through, you know, the, the things. And then this, this monologue by Luthen was astonishing, absolutely astonishing. You don't hire Stellan Skarsgård without giving him a quality monologue at some point in your season. I've made my mind a sunless place. I share my dreams with ghosts. I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for somebody else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I will never see. Like, what is this? What is this television show? I am so blown away. You know, when Lonnie asked that question, I don't think he expected a sonnet. (laughs) Oh my God, Lonnie got an earful. It was incredible. Some people might criticize the way that this felt very scripted, that this felt very prepared, but I loved every minute of it. I think it was a great way to frame everything that happens afterwards, really. I mean, you think about Luke and Leia and Han and these people who, like, Han's the darkest one of them, and we can't even get him to shoot first, according to George Lucas. (laughs) That's a very good point. And yet, you have these people who are doing, like, the really morally gray things and morally bad things. I mean, he's ready to sacrifice 50 men just to keep this one guy because he deems that intel more valuable than this team. It was really bad. As a father... I could relate too, like, oh yeah, you know, like I want to, I want to get out of here. I want to be done with this. I gotta, you know, I gotta take care of my family and stuff. And then Luthen's like dropping that on you, like, yeah, I'm sacrificing 50 men so that you can, you know, remain warm and happy. Wow, that is a heavy, heavy trip. And the way that Luthen very quickly is ready to go, okay, well, they're gonna die. Yeah, yeah, because he's playing such a much, much bigger game. And you could tell that Luthen got angry with this because it wasn't just Lonnie getting scared because at first that's what it was. But by the time he goes, well, what do you sacrifice? Luthen's like, oh, you're going to question my sacrifice like that? You want to know what I've done? Did I stutter? And it was so, it gave us so much more into Luthen's interior. Right. And the fact that he can't, like, we can see Mon Mothma struggling with carrying on two different identities. And she's doing it, but Luthen has it down cold because he has sacrificed his inner peace. He sacrificed kinship. He sacrificed love. He sacrificed the company and, and companionship of his friends and his family because of an, an equation that he wrote down. Like, he is all in on this. And this is all he is. Now, what is this equation, though? I think it was just a turn, a, a figure of speech. Just like, if I'm going to spark rebellion, then this is what I have to do. This is who I have to become. Do you think so? It felt foundation to me for a minute. Yeah, I, I totally had a foundation vibe when he, when he said that line, too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was very strange. I wonder if we're going to hear more about this equation. Though. Like, maybe he did do an equation of, like, you know, X amount of deaths plus X amount of morally bad actions equal successful rebellion. 
Well, that's interesting that you point that out too, because he does make the calculation that that um, Lonnie is worth more than fifty of Anto uh, Krieger's men. Yeah, and so that is you know he's got an algorithm running in his mind about same with Aldani. It was like, well, I, you know, we're short on Aldani. I need somebody who can step in and pinch hit here, and I I got to get this guy in on this job. And so he's constantly running these calculations and trying to unlock the code that's going to spark the rebellion for real. Okay, speaking of Aldani, why does Luthen consistently deny his involvement there with people he can supposedly trust? Mm, because I think if he does um, admit to it, God, yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm trying to think that through now, because if he does admit to it, then I, you know, if I'm that person asking him, if I'm Saw or if I'm Lonnie, then like suddenly like, oh, like you really are for real. Like this is somehow my calculation of you is going to change. Yeah. And up and, you know, up until this point, we haven't like this scene with Lonnie, Luthen is really revealing something. He's being really authentic here about what he's done to his interior life for the <laughs> sacrifice for the greater good that we haven't seen before. And so, yeah, I don't know how to process this yet. It, it's still sort of, yeah, why, would, why would he deny his involvement? I mean, he doesn't want anybody coming back on him, certainly. Right. Like if you got caught and you could say, oh, yeah, I know, I know Luthen did it. Yeah, maybe he's trying to sever connections. I mean, he does tell, uh, he does tell Lonnie to encourage Dedra to pursue the Aldani connection because she's wasting her time. Right. Masterful. Yeah. I mean, he's a very convincing really? liar. I'll say that. Yeah. I want to come back to this line, I burn my life to make a sunrise that I'll never see. This, this line, I think, is going to echo uh, out uh, from, from here. And, and for me, the first place it went to was the end of Rogue One. Spoilers, everybody dies. Um, when we see Cassian and uh, Jin on the beach, and they embrace as this nuclear sunrise torches off. And I was just, I was taken immediately back to that. You know, so here, something that he's put in, you know, stuff that he's putting into motion now is going to pay off to this sunrise that he'll never see, the sunrise on Scarif, where the Death Star shoots. And then ultimately, you know, that leads to the plans and Luke Skywalker, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all of this other, all of these unintended consequences that the, the actions that he's taking now are going to have on the galaxy. And I think there's probably a reason Luthen's not in Rogue One. I don't think he gets to see that sunrise. <laughs> yeah, I, I would definitely take bets on that. Speaking of Road, Rogue One, I, I looked up one of the trailers today because this line was echoing in my head from Forrest Whitaker. And I think it basically got cut in the rewrite. And I think we have a, a listener feedback about that. Saw Guerrera in one of the teaser trailers says, what will you do when they catch you? What will you do when they break you? But you continue to fight. What will you become? And <laughs> again, Rogue One and and or talking to each other here. And it just makes me think, this line here makes me think about what has Cassian become? What has Melchi become? What have all of these other prisoners become who, when they, they, they're caught and they, the Empire was trying to break them, and then they fight 
Like, what do you become after that? What, what happens to you once you've crossed over that threshold and actually participate actively in rebellion? We are definitely seeing characters turn corners, I suppose. And uh, I, I, I like in Mon Mothma's conversation with Skulden how he goes, oh, you don't want to turn that corner? You know, he he's playing around with the faces that she'd like to portray Yes, in that conversation. And you have the same thing with these characters where, what corner do you want me to turn? Am I the benevolent shop owner who's showing antiques on Coruscant? Mm-hmm. Am I the leader that's inspiring you to take rebellious acts? Or am I the darkened soul who is sacrificing himself for the greater good? Mm-hmm. Very, very cool stuff. I love the connections you're bringing in with Rogue One, because I saw it so long ago, I kind of don't remember mo- most of the lines from it. So thanks for that. We're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to watch it, like, right after. The, I know, I've been waiting. <laughs> right after the last episode. I've been waiting, because I want to I wanna yeah. go in cold after this season. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so last up, we have a very short scene, just a shot of Cassian and Melshi escaping. Yeah, this was really bleak. This is a really bleak planet. I don't have no idea how they're going to get off. Part of me is curious to see if they're going to show us that, if like they're going to pick up episode 11, like right where, where we're off. But if 11 and 12 are their own little arcs, sometimes they, they break uh, uh, a little bit further distance between the, the episodes. So I'm really curious to see where we go from here. Do we see them, you know, figuring their way off the planet, or do we just jump ahead at some point and uh, have them somewhere else? I hope that they explain how they get off planet, but I also don't want to linger there. Yeah. Maybe they have them do it in like the cold open, Mm -hmm. and then we fast forward for the main episode. I mean, if you're going to do it, give me something new about their characters, right? Give me some new insight into their relationship. Give me some insight into their psychology. Yeah, as Jim and Aaron would say, the traveling road show. Sometimes you have that and it's a fun time. Yeah. Although I don't know if that's really the vibe of this show. I think this show is more about uh, moving the plot forward at the same time as you're doing the characterization. Absolutely. All right. Why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we will take the express elevator down to the listener feedback. And we're back. David, we've got listener feedback. We've got a bunch of people writing in, and thanks so much for doing that. Again, you can write in at andor at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get back to you on the next episode. So first up, we have Double Dipping Ed. Is that how we signed it? (laughs) No. (laughs) Ed was so enthusiastic, he wrote in two emails almost back-to-back. And so I thought I'd give him a fun little name. All right. Well, that's from David, Ed. (laughs) You and I have no beef. (laughs) Ed's good. He's down. First email is regarding Narkina 5. He says, It's Cloud City and Blade Runner 2049 colliding at 99% of C. C, speed of light. Oh. Like, wow, man. (laughs) I think Ed was a little blown away by the production design for this. Well, how could he not be? How could he not? All right. Second email. One of the big things that Andor is doing is really finally tearing Star Wars out of the hands of the Skywalker saga, the Jedi, and the Force. I would say it's not implausible that you never see the Force or a lightsaber in the whole two-season run, and then the end of Rogue One ties it back in. 
I did think the Sherpas on Aldani were going to do something for C. Between the Temple, the Starfall thing, and the lead Sherpa, who wasn't really Brian Cranston, <laughs> having what was clearly a lightsaber on his staff, but maybe that was a show way of showing that the Force to the general populace doesn't really exist anymore, except as an oral tradition. I, I want to respond to this quickly, the last part. Yeah. The Force is something that, to my understanding, is supposed to be within all in the Star Wars universe. I mean, there's the religion of the Jedi, but the Force is not necessarily a religious entity. It is... It surrounds us. Right. It finds us. It's like, <laughs> it's like energy. It's like the essence of the universe. And so I do think that the Aldani people, the Sherpas, are doing something regarding the Force. It's just not like a Force push, you know? It's not somebody who's mm -hmm. Force-sensitive necessarily, but everybody has the Force within them, and, and the Force is involved with these cultural things. Right, right. And, and maybe through different cultural practices, you might develop your sensitivity or, or uh, ability to use it in, in small ways that uh, don't rise to the level of the Jedi. Right. Yeah. I don't want to get into the mitochondria uh, or the <laughs> mitochondrion of it all, but... <laughs> the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, gotta, so know, yeah, I, no, don't, don't confuse that with mitochondrions. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's just, uh, it's all muddled in my head. I, I will um, say that I think Ed puts his finger on something, and I, this is something I want to talk about later, is what does the Star Wars universe mean? What, you know, what, how does and or change the state of affairs in the Star Wars universe. Because anybody else who's working on a Star Wars show right now, a movie or a show, like, you got to be shitting your pants after this, after watching episode 10. Yeah, you haven't even seen the full 24 two-season run, right? John Favreau burned his stack of scripts. Oh, my God. When he saw this episode. That's, you know, I, this, I'm reporting it now. This is, this is a real <laughs> fact. John Favreau That's called right. me and he said, John... I just burned all my scripts because Tony Gilroy knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> I'd love to be a, uh, a fly on the wall in that on the, for that conversation. <laughs> what I want to say about this is I don't want every show to be Andor. I don't want every Star Wars show to be lacking Jedi, lacking the Force. Maybe lacking Skywalkers would be nice because I'm kind of done with them. Right. But I think that we do need that in the Star Wars universe. And something that I've been thinking about lately is, well, I don't want Tony Gilroy to run every show in Star Wars. I do want more voices and more diverging approaches to show up in the Star Wars universe. And I want them to have full creative control. Because when you see these show after show by Jon Favreau, Jon Favreau, Jon Favreau, you know, I, I, he makes some good shows sometimes, but it gets a little bit old to see the same kind of approach of mm -hmm. member berries and more member berries and more tie-ins right. with this and that and this and that. And I'd rather see more people tell more diverse stories in this universe. And I hope that this is the beginning of that and not just handing the keys to Tony Gilroy, not that I think he'd be interested anyway, but giving more diverse directors a chance to tell a story in this world that doesn't need to check any boxes. Right. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, another famous author uh, and a line from one of his letters about many hands telling, you know, different parts of the, of the story. Yeah, especially in something like Star Wars, which, you know, you're talking about Tolkien, obviously. 
but especially when you're talking about Star Wars, where it's a story that has been told by many hands over the years. And yes, it originally spawned from the mind of George Lucas. But between the Legends novels, between the new canon novels, between the comics and the shows, and, you know, how much influence has Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni and other creators had on the series by now? Right. Yeah. And then there's the studio house itself, right? And, and there's the power structure that, that's controlling at even a higher level. Right. Yeah. So I'm hoping to see more shows of the same caliber as Andor, but yeah. still have the Force, Jedi, Scott lightsabers happening in different shows. Right. But I agree with you, Ed, that I don't want any lightsabers in this show. Right. Right. Because it's not this show. Right. Yep. Cool. All right. Next up, we have Dennis, friend of the pod, Discord moderator, and Patreon subscriber. Hi, Dennis, and thank you. All of Saw's scenes were rewritten and reshot during post-production of Rogue One. The original trailer has Saw with a totally different hairstyle than what he has in the film, even if it's the same dialogue. Interesting. I didn't realize the extent of the the rewrites and reshoots that they had done. I thought that they were, you know, just shuffled some pieces around and reshot a few things. Um, but that uh, that sounds like a pretty extensive um, reworking of the story. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea how much production mess happened in Rogue One. It seems like there are a lot of movies lately where there are these shakeups. Uh-huh. And it's kind of interesting to see. I wonder, I honestly wonder how Tony Gilroy ended up coming back to the Star Wars universe after that experience. I was listening to, um, I think it was on the Midnight Boys on that same podcast. Um, they were, somebody was talking about how Star Wars, ever since Rogue One, and I get it, these are, this is unverified stuff, so I'm just, I'm just gossiping here. I, I don't actually gossip have a away. verified source. Yes. Um, after Tony finished on Rogue One, they were Star Wars leadership. I don't know if that's Kathleen Kennedy or, you know, who within the, that part of the apparatus was after Gilroy for quite a while to do something else. And so they were sending him all kinds of stuff and ideas and scripts and whatnot. And, and he just kept rejecting everything. And then finally, he was like, look, y'all, if you want me to do Star Wars, then here. This is what I would do. And he gave them a treatment for, for the Cassie and Ando story. Because I think he'd been talking with Diego Luna, too, because Diego Luna was wanting to do something with the Cassian character. And he's like, look, if you want me to do something, you know, all the stuff that you've been sending me is just, you know, fluff, garbage. I'm not interested. Here's what I would be interested in doing. And they were like, okay. And he was like, okay, sign here. <laughs> and then off, <laughs> off to the races they went. So... Again, that's just pure gossip. That's what I've kind of gleaned and, and heard from other sources and, and other articles. But they were basic, you know, um, um, Star Wars was chasing Tony. Tony wasn't chasing them. Well, I'm glad that he was chased. And I'm glad that he successfully returned because this is an excellent show. Well, he played hard to get and, and then he got got and then now he got this. So I'm good. <laughs> well, next up to get got is Justin E. from Apex, North Carolina. Hey, David and John. Hi, Justin. I've been thinking about why the Empire wouldn't use biometrics to scan in their prisoners on Narkina 5, since it seems to be a sticking point for John. First, <laughs> we know that these biometrics, or at least facial scans, exist from Chapter 15 of The Mandalorian, The Believer. Yep. 
This is the awesome Bill Burr episode in season two where Din must remove his helmet to scan his face at a terminal. Side note, that was an excellent episode for uh, Mandalorian, I will say. Well, I haven't watched The Mandalorian yet, so. Wow. Wow. I'll get there. Okay. I'll get there. All right. You're all in on Star Wars now. This is your new lore. I'm all in on Star Wars. I only watch Star Wars yeah. now. You know, this is, this okay. is you know, screw- <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien, get out of here. Just kidding. Could join us for the Silmarillion read-along. Anyway, Justin E. continues. What I can surmise is there's a lot of reasons why the Empire wouldn't require biometrics for its prison workers, because a lot of them might be wanted and bounty hunted. Ex-stormtroopers, family of people in high places, etc. And if word gets out that they're imprisoned, it would lead to a disruption in productivity because because there'd be legal trouble and actual conflict from people trying to remove the prisoners from custody. So rather than deal with this headache, the Empire basically keeps everyone anonymous, so the work continues. No one leaves unless it's in a bag. I like this theory. Uh, it's good headcanon. It's good headcanon. This seems to work with the kind of oversight we are used to with the Empire. Though this may be the reason they are missing an opportunity to question Cassian, in their minds, even though Cassian could point them to Luthen, at least Cassian is basically dead and no longer a threat. Anyway, hope this helps. Loving your coverage. And looking forward to following along the Silmarillion with you. Plug your read-along here. We already did. I don't need you to tell me to talk about Tolkien, Justin. I'll do it all day, every day. I like Justin's headcanon here. That uh, it, it's, it may not be true, but you know, it, I think it works for me in, in this position. They're just like, we don't care. We just need bodies. They're cheaper than droids. Put them in the machine and get them to go to work. And the less rabble we have on the outside trying to come to the prison door and knock and, you know, file appeals and all that kind of stuff. Just disappear the people and uh, play ignorant. Here's the thing about biometrics with this. You know, they didn't tell me this on screen. This is a headcanon, and it's a a good headcanon. It's just, you know, they got to tell me that on screen if they want me to buy it. But what I will say is that if the show had a lot of issues, the biometrics thing might be a sticking point for me, but I wouldn't say it's a sticking point for me because the writing is so good otherwise. And the story is so compelling that I can overlook any details that might be missing, which there are very few anyway. And so by the time we got to this prison break, I was like, biometrics? What does that even mean? And I I didn't care anymore. So I I appreciate your writing in, though, Justin. But I'm glad that we're out of the prison and there will be no more debate about biometrics. (laughs) Okay. Last up, we have Kurt S. regarding the Galactic Senate. Hey, guys. Loving your coverage of Andor so far, and glad you chose to cover all remaining episodes. This show richly deserves the attention. So are we. You piqued my interest in your coverage of the last episode in the discussion of how the Senate has been portrayed prior to this show, and whether George Lucas had really even conceived of it before the prequel movies. I will say, there is definitely some mention of it in the original movie. In an early scene in the Death Star conference room, Imperial commanders argue about the potency of the Rebel Alliance and its support in the Imperial Senate. Tarkin and Vader enter the room and Tarkin states that the Imperial Senate will no longer be of any concern to us. I have just received word that the Emperor has dissolved the Council permanently. The last remnants of the Old Republic have been swept away. This happens to be the same scene we referenced earlier, where Colonel Wolf Ularen makes his retcon cameo appearance. What I really like about how they're portraying the Senate in Andor is how we can already see how ineffective it's becoming. 
It seems like many of the seats are empty, nothing like we saw in the prequels, and no one is really listening to each other anyway, strikingly similar to our own world, sadly. It's pretty clear to see how easy it was for the Emperor to just get rid of it in the end, and give direct control to the regional governors. Overall, this show is doing incredible work in not just redefining the stakes of the rebellion, but what the cost of the rebellion truly is on a personal level, as well as for the galaxy on a whole. Enjoy the rest of the season. I'll be right there with you. Kurt. This is a great um, email, too, and, and I really appreciate the fact that he calls back to the, the Star Wars and that scene. I can totally see in my head Tarkin and, and Darth Vader walking into that, that council room. And, you know, when I was a, whatever, eight, seven-year-old eight year old kid when, when this came out, I was like, Old Republic? Imperial Senate? What? And then, like, moving on, but it just made the world very rich and feel very lived in, and that there are these vestiges of power that I could understand, that there's some sort of governing body, but this evil empire organization is just sweeping all of that away. And I think that Kurt's point goes even further this episode when you have this comment from Skulden that these regulations were passed without Senate approval. Seems like the Senate is apathetic, like you're saying, Kurt, and yeah, it seems like the emperor doesn't even need the Senate to do anything. So who cares who what the Senate thinks? Because the emperor is going to do what he wants. Yep. Well, thanks, Kurt, for writing in. That's the end of our listener feedback. But we've got more discussion to have. So, David, do you want to discuss some of these lingering thoughts on your mind? Yeah, and we've been touching on, on a bunch of them as we've been going through the episode. And but I just there's, I, I feel compelled to, to think a little bit deeper and a little bit wider about not only what this show is doing to Star Wars, but what's going on with these characters in, in a different way, conversating about these things in a little bit differ, different way in a little bit more of an open boundary session. And I think Kurt's last email here really does point to one of these ideas that I'm wrestling with, which is the the stakes that are involved for these characters to really spark off a rebellion, a true rebellion. It's one thing to play at the edges. It's another to sacrifice to the degree that Mon Mothma is sacrificing, to the extent that she's going to sacrifice her daughter. Uh, for Cassian, you know, who got caught up, you know, being a tourist in his own life, to now breaking out of prison you know, to, to Luthen sacrificing, you know, morally, his, in, his inner moral life to a point where, you know, he says the line that, you know, I share my dreams with ghosts. My mind is a sunless place. Like, he's devastated his interior life to be in service of this rebellion. And then when we, we see Luthen give this monologue, to then compare it to what we, what other scenes they gave us in the show— the prison break and Marva specifically, and Cinta, we see a, a, a quick blip of Cinta. You know, what is at stake here and what is the sacrifice that you as an individual have to make to actually affect this scale of change? Sacrifice was a big theme this episode. Uh huh. And the way that Luthen had to outline his sacrifice, the way that Lonnie has to outline his sacrifice, and then Mon Mothma, who, by the way, Mon Mothma is going to make that call. I'm almost certain that she, she's going to make this compromise. Oh, yeah, and and Skulldoon already knows it. 
Right, exactly. That's the first untrue thing you've said, he says. Oh, man. Really great line. Uh, We've come a long way from you can write this stuff, but you can't say it, haven't we? Yeah. Harrison Ford's famous takedown of George Lucas's dialogue. (laughs) Oh, is that? Oh, I didn't. uh... Oh, you don't know about this? Yeah, apparently. No, no. This is, I think, a rumor, but I think Harrison Ford supposedly said about George Lucas's dialogue, you can write this shit, but you can't say it. (laughs) That's a great line. A great Harrison Ford thing to say, too. Yeah. So anyway... These sacrifices that even Marva and Bix and Pack are making, yep. there's just a lot of suffering in this show, but I think that Luthen sort of ties it together and makes it feel like it means something. And this thought occurred to me, too. Luthen has to lose in order to win. Right. He has to lose everything that he had before. Whoever he was, whatever family he was you know, connected to, whatever friends and colleagues, he's had to 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 devastate his own interior life in order to win. And that is just an incredible pivot point for a character. And and as a you know, as a thought, as a person, what am I doing, you know, in my life, you know, to to make a difference in some way? You know, and and I think that's something where good art, good entertainment can inspire and inform us. And well and- I hope you've not compromise yourself to the level of Luthen, but uh, yeah, we yeah, guys, if you're listening to this podcast, that doesn't mean you need to go and do morally bad things to get a good end. It doesn't mean that we're not advocating for that. <laughs> Luthen is a monster too. It's true, and that is that is absolutely. I mean, he's willing to sacrifice fifty men, right? Right, At, it, without even without even a hesitation, he's willing to sacrifice fifty men, right? Exactly, and a potential ally. But at the same time, some of the what we see with the characters, Luthen, Vel, uh, Cassie, and Kino, they've all had moments of uncertainty and doubt, crippling in some cases. You know, a couple of episodes back, uh, Clea is like on Cassie and it's like, you're asleep. Like, wake up, you know, get back on point. You know, Kino, you know, wrestling with himself to, to actually become, you know, the, the leader that he is. Uh, Vel, you know, struggling with her her engagement with uh, with the rebellion and just wanting a quiet moment with her girlfriend, right? Right. In so many other shows, they might give us our main characters, you know, having a moment of doubt, having a a, um, a little bit of of crisis, but it would always be done in this sort of intellectual way. It would all be always be done in this superficial way. Where, okay, we just, you know, the writers are just exercising the plot and they're exercising some tropes and they're running some dialogue through the the mouth of the actor. But these moments of doubt and uncertainty are near crippling to these characters. And we don't see that in other shows. We don't see this amount of soul searching that uh, the characters have to do and really wrestle with it and really figure out how to come out on the other side. And, you know, layer that in again, too, with the, the, the level of sacrifice that the characters are having to deal with. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be the hero and I'm put on my super cape and my super shield and, you know, go, go kick some alien butts. But here, these are, are three-dimensional people. Well, Luthen is saving the galaxy, but he's a monster. Right. Right? You know, um, Vel loves her, her cousin, but she shuts down the connection because, you know, they're there for a cause. They took a vow. 
And, you know, that gives Ma and Mothma like a moment of hesitation. And we feel that and we experience that with her. This is the kind of moral martyrdom that I've never seen portrayed in fiction before. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you see tons of times somebody leaps into the fire or they, you know, hold the door open for people to escape and they die. And they do this physical sacrifice, but I don't think we've ever seen this kind of soul sacrifice. Right. That we're seeing with Luthen here. Yeah. At least not outlined so clearly. Yeah. And I think it's a, I think it's exceptional and extraordinary. And we have different characters uh, sacrificing it at, at, you know, in different ways and at different levels. And I just really appreciate the fact that they're giving us these moral gray areas. What would you do? What would you become? When they try to break you, when they, when they try to catch you. Right. You know, like, what, how far would you go? And I think it's just fascinating to see this, um, the, 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 the characters wrestling with these questions in, in themselves. It is. What else do you have for me, David? This is one that's a little less researched, but I want to I want to think about it more, and I don't know, maybe it's going to come up in a, after rewatching the whole series. But time, the the question of time keeps coming up in the show. Tay says at one point, you know, uh, time is, you know, uh, what does he say? Something about time is um, is not infinite, or there's like, you know, it's it's a running resource. Uh, Luthen talks about time, I think, in in this episode a little bit. So that's that's one that I want to like maybe hang a hat or hang on hang our hats on. And pick up in a in a later episode. Yeah, this question of like, what is what is this show going to do to the Star Wars universe? Because no other show is wrestling with uh, these moral quandaries in the same way. I mean, okay, Luke had to confront his father, but again, it was just all very superficial and, and intellectual. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've already kind of touched on the approach that Star Wars has taken in the last few years. And this sort of, I, I feel, quantity over quality mm-hmm. that, it's been a pro, that it's been using. Um, and I think partially because there's been too few hands in the kitchen is that it's not been spread out among um, enough minds to create the level of quality that we need. As far as what it does to canon, you know, maybe Gorse dies by the end of this and he was the expert on this method, so they just don't use it anymore. Who knows? Right. You know, you got, you also have... In the Star Wars original trilogy, you have a ton of Force-sensitive people running around, and they can just Force choke you, Force lightning you whenever they want. So I don't think that we need this torture as much as we needed it in this situation. Right. So that's how I feel about how it's going to affect the Star Wars canon is uh, the original trilogy will always be the original trilogy, and I'm okay with this method being used. Fair enough. Well, you know, I think uh, this has been a probably pretty long podcast. Um, so I've got a four or five other thoughts, and maybe we'll save them up for future episodes and for our season wrap as well. But yeah, I just wanted to start to think a little bit wider outside of the episode itself and touch on some of these deeper uh, concepts and and uh, things that the show is dealing with. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a good way to start a conversation on these because the show is dealing with a lot of big ideas. Yep. All right, David. Let's do some housekeeping to end this show. Okay, David, so why don't we do our housekeeping before we head out of here? As far as episodes coming out, we have this show and or coming out every Saturday. You can always write in at and or at lorehounds.com. We also have The White Lotus over on HBO, where our episodes come out every Wednesday following the premieres. And 
later this month, right before Thanksgiving, we have Silmarillion stories, so don't forget to get your questions in on that. We'll be reading the Ina Lindelay, which is the first few pages of the Silmarillion, so it's, we're keeping it really light, and you can listen if you don't read, too. We'll talk about the story, so hopefully everyone will be able to enjoy this, whether you'd like to read this dense work or not. Again, our December plans include Tales of the Jedi and another Silmarillion story, and we will always be doing Second Breakfast over on the Patreon once a month, just for our patrons. You can ask us questions about life, life advice, whatever you want. And you'll hear us talk about shows that we're not covering, and video games, and books, etc. Lastly, the Patreon is there if you want ad-free and early episodes. Now, I want to give a shout-out to Samartian, who is in our Loremaster tier, where they get a shout-out on each one of our podcasts. And you, too, can get these benefits at patreon.com slash the lorehounds. If you are happy here, though, we will see you next Saturday. David, I'll talk to you then. Sounds good. Thanks, John. The Andor Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to andor at thelorehounds.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehouse feed, The Lorehounds, on your podcast app of choice. To get ad-free versions of this and all other Lorehounds podcasts, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.